Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. McBride, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Um, you always clear up the Kennedy assassination. Some areas I'm a little bit hazy, and I'm going to have a couple more questions. But I want to, you know, what's how's it been, man? We haven't talked in a little while. Well, great to see you again, Robbie. And uh, congratulations on your, your work on your film, which I'm looking forward to. You've had amazing success in getting important guests. Uh, it's it's a tribute to your skills as a um, very indefatigable and knowledgeable um podcaster a researcher and uh it's great to get constant uh, flow of people talking and and debating etc and, and you've done a wonderful job i've been uh, busy teaching in san francisco state i teach film and uh i've been teaching john ford's liberty valance the man who shot liberty valance in my a class on writing and that film prefigures the assassination it came out in 62 and it deals with the political killing from the shadows uh, that people didn't know about. It's it's history has reported a false version of events uh, that a, a senator, who t a person who took credit for killing a notorious outlaw really didn't do it. And it was really uh, two guys from the shadows, kind of a grassy knoll thing. Artists tend to be canaries in the coal mine who were ahead of the curve. And John Ford was uh, educating us on the reality of assassinations a year before the assassination. and um I've, I've been talking a lot about it uh studying constantly new books keep coming out that i keep reading and um I, I i told you i wrote a book i wrote a short story on kennedy's assassination in october 1961 for my high school english class freshman class at marquette university high school in milwaukee because i had volunteered on his campaign in 1960 the picture you see behind me i took it the first event at which i met him it was a small event my mother ran she was active in the democratic party she became vice chairman the following year and in in wisconsin and marion mcbride and she uh, put uh, scheduled an event called kids for kennedy at the wauwatosa city hall it's a suburb where i lived and it was two blocks from my house and i went up there and met him and it was a small noontime gathering about a hundred uh, kids and their mothers basically and uh kennedy arrived with uh, an aide a photographer and um, a reporter, and the reporter might have been Theodore White, who was sticking close to him, writing the making of the president. Um, and uh, I was struck by Kennedy's lack of security at that event and another one four days later where I met him at a big event with 3,000 people in Milwaukee that's featured in the groundbreaking documentary Primary that people may have seen. And he was very vulnerable, I thought. Um, at both events, there was no visit. Well, there was no security at all in the, in this little event that is behind you. And at the one in uh, downtown Milwaukee, uh, there was uh, there was a policeman around, but uh, kind of just hovering in the you know a few feet away. But there wasn't much security, and I managed to take this picture of him 
smiling. It's it's out of focus because I put the camera four feet from his face and blew off a flashbulb in his face, which I realized was very rude because he flinched, you know, this explosion four feet from his face. But he was such a good politician that he immediately recovered and smiled. But I felt bad that I had done that. I was 12 years old. and uh, But I shook his hand, got his autograph, and uh, talked to him briefly. And then I talked to his wife. And uh, so I was fortunate to have a front row seat uh, at, at these events. And again, I was struck by his vulnerability. I was studying the Lincoln assassination when I was a kid. I was a Civil War. Uh, uh, I studied Civil War uh, carefully. And so I kind of knew how assassination plots work. So my story was called The Plot Against a Country. I was correct. It, it's kind of a, a juvenile effort, but I stole the murder uh, method from a Superman comic book. But, um, you know, I kind of knew something about if you're going to kill a president, it's probably a plot. And I wrote about the autopsy and other events that came true. And Let me hop 16... in real quick. Let me just hop yeah, in. Yeah, sure, sure. When it came to his security being lax, that's, I mean, that's not a surprising thing just because I don't think there was ever really a political assassination or an attempt on a, a leader's life like that. Um, at least before, I, I guess Abe Lincoln would be one, but I mean, that's a good time chunk between Abe Lincoln and then Kennedy. But prior before that, we know about Reagan later, but I think with the security being lax, I mean, there was never really, Kennedy didn't have anything to fear when it came to someone trying to attack him for anything of that sort. He, he uh, well, you know, I mean, campaigns draw anger even even back then, but, you know, be, between Lincoln and Kennedy, there was, um, uh, McKinley was assassinated in 1901. He was shaking hands at a, at a rally and some guy came up to him with a gun in his hand and uh, shot him. Theodore Roosevelt became president. There was somebody who tried to kill uh, President Franklin Roosevelt in 1933 before he became president. It was during the, uh, between the election and the inauguration and, and the shot killed the mayor of Chicago instead. And uh, there was an attempt on Harry Truman in 1950, which people didn't hear much about, uh, but there's there's been a book about it. It's uh, an interesting thing. Some Puerto Rican nationalists tried to kill Truman at the Blair House across from Wash, uh, from the White House. And he was in the second floor bedroom. And he came to the window during the shooting. And uh, the Secret Service told him to get back. And a White House policeman was killed. And Secret Service um, uh, gunned down um, the shooters. And then the another thing that's forgotten about, when people talk about January 6th, uh, the attack on the Capitol, as being the first since 1812. That's just not true. In 1954, there was an attack on the, on the House of Representatives by other Puerto Rican nationalists who wanted to be uh, liberated from the US. And uh, they shot up the floor of the house and, and wounded several people. Nobody got killed. And, well, and the weather underground blew up a toilet in one of those uh, federal buildings as well, too. Yeah, they were planting bombs during the Nixon administration. Uh, a lot of bombs were planted in various places. I covered in Wisconsin in 1970, the, um, there was a local uh, anti-war group, uh, a small group that blew up uh, the Army Math Research Center, which was planning bombing raids in Vietnam, and they killed a graduate student, and I, I covered that event. And uh, I predicted that event. I was talking to Orson Welles four days before because I was in L.A., first time I was ever in L.A., and I met Wells and he put me in a film, The Other Side of the Wind, which finally came out in 2018. And we were talking about politics and he, he liked Lyndon Johnson 
because he passed a lot of civil rights le legislation and um, Medicare and a lot of good things. But I was saying that that was countered by you know, the Vietnam War and Johnson uh, Wells wouldn't hear any of it. He got mad at me. And he also thought the anti-war activists were all terrific. But I said, I've been covering them on the ground as a reporter and they're getting very violent and they're going to kill somebody real soon. And he, he got upset that I said that. And four days later, uh, they killed a guy. And, and uh, um, so there were, there were assassination attempts of presidents. And even before Kennedy became president, there was a man in December 1960 who was going to blow up Kennedy at his uh, home in Palm Beach, uh, Florida. And he, he said he stopped because Kennedy came out the door with his wife and children. They were going to church and he didn't want to harm them. And he was arrested later. Um, so there were nuts around there, uh, but there were people who were uh, anti-Kennedy because of civil rights and, and other policies, foreign policy, et cetera. Johnson with the Medicare stuff, that was Kennedy's doing, though, and then Johnson took the credit for it, if I'm not mistaken. Well, Kennedy laid the framework for that in the civil rights legislation, that's true. Uh, but Johnson had tremendous uh, ability to get bills through Congress, as Robert Caro writes about in his volumes on Johnson. He was a master of the Senate, as as Caro calls him, and he pulled out all stops. He was great at uh, manipulating and uh, even blackmailing people to vote the way he wanted. He was a friend of J. Edgar Hoover and a neighbor, and Hoover would give him dirt on political opponents that he would use to force them to vote. But he was a great, you know, politician. Well, Johnson was a boisterous man. Like he was a very, I wouldn't say empowering, but a very towering figure he was very good at intimidating people to get his way in a lot of things i looked at plenty of uh recordings of him um and the actions that he does as well to pissing on secret service members shoes and things of that sort i mean there's a lot of there where it's like this guy was just like you know he knew he was like he was trying to be alpha in a lot of sense and i think that's where you can get a lot of things passed but the hoover blackmailing thing is that real like i know anthony summers has his book and he has this aspect that the, i've seen the hoover dress picture of him in a dress i've seen it i don't know if i can verify it but i go i i think it's more believable to land in the realm that he never went after the mob because the mob, you know, they fixed the races at the track. I think that's a lot more believable than the uh, the dress pictures of the hidden homosexuality thing. Well, he was a homosexual and his boyfriend was Clyde Tolson, who he uh, lived with, and he was a high official at the FBI. Uh, so he was vulnerable to blackmail on that score because homosexuals were often blackmailed during the uh, McCarthy era. But uh, the dress thing, I discount that whole story because... The story was spread by the, the wife of a um, mob figure who uh, they had a lot of animus toward Hoover and uh, she claims she saw him in a dress at some party, but I, I think that's just gossip. That, Do you want to see the photo? Yeah, well, okay. I haven't seen a photo of that, but I got uh, it. Let's see. You have it. Okay. I'll look at it later. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, I mean, that's as less important than his blackmail. He had these secret files, they called them, and he had them in his office and they they just they disappeared right after he died and he he used them he had blackmail material on uh, everybody and uh, he didn't hesitate to use it to uh, get his way and you know we know he was blackmailing dr martin luther king and he had dirt on president kennedy's romances and things going way back to the 40s and and but with Johnson, uh, Johnson didn't hesitate to use files on people. You know, if you had some senator who was having a sexual liaison or had some problem, 
Johnson would use that against the guy to get him to vote. And uh, that's the way it was done. And maybe it still is to some extent. But uh, Johnson was very effective, though. You can't take that away from him. He passed a lot of progressive legislation. But the, the a great society, as he called it, was really ruined by the Vietnam War because it was tragic that he he was put in office by the people who uh, wanted to expand the war. And Kennedy, as we know, was trying to wind back the war. And he'd already uh, publicly announced he was pulling out a thousand troops in Vietnam. And he told his aides he was going to uh, end the conflict uh, after he got reelected in 64 and had, you know, firm power. Um, but um, that wasn't reported in the press, but Johnson and his cronies knew about it because Noam Chomsky, who is very anti-conspiracy in the Kennedy assassination, wrote a book attacking Oliver Stone's JFK, but uh, he writes about Vietnam, but he made a good point that the Vietnam War, we think the United States lost the Vietnam War. We used to say it's the first war we ever lost. Well, we lost the Korean War too, which is officially called a stalemate. We haven't won a war since World War II with the help of our allies, unless you count Grenada, which was this absurd uh, bullying thing where Ronald Reagan attacked a small island. But um, Vietnam, we lost. But Chomsky said we won in a sense that the people who benefited from it, the uh, military industrial complex made out like bandits. And uh, the people included uh, Halliburton, which Johnson uh, was owned and operated by Halliburton, which had They'd absorb Brown and Root, the Houston construction company that paid Johnson a lot of bribes from the 1930s onward in exchange for political favors like building a dam in Texas. And, and But they got, um, they were part of a consortium of uh, four companies that built, had all the construction contracts for the war in Vietnam, including, for example, Camran Bay, which was a, a bay that we built to land uh, troops and it, it was a two billion dollar contract, which was serious money in those days. And uh, Johnson, the first thing he said when Kennedy was shot, they came to him and said oh, Kennedy was dead. He said, "Does this mean I have to sell my goddamn Halliburton stock?" He called his tax lawyer in Houston. That's the first thing in his mind. But he didn't sell his stock. He uh, Robert Caro points out the Wall Street Journal in the summer of '64 reported that Johnson's so-called uh, he put his money into a, um, a, what do you call it? Uh, he had a, a guy controlling the money, so a blind, a blind account, you know. Um, so he supposedly couldn't um, be influenced by stock trading. But in fact, Carol points out he had a phone behind his desk where he would talk to his, that was the same guy, his tax lawyer in Houston was uh, controlled the blind trust is what, what he had. Uh, blind is absurd because he was on the phone four or five times a day talking to this uh, tax guy. Wadi Bullion was his name. And, and uh, Johnson was very wealthy. Uh, he had about $25 million in the White House when he was president and made a fortune and took bribes. He was getting in trouble for that. And when the moment when Kennedy was killed, Johnson was very anxious because there was a hearing going on in Washington, a Senate hearing at which a fellow named Don Reynolds was testifying about how he had to give a bribe to Johnson. And he was giving the committee receipts and records and things that could have really forced Johnson out of office or sent him to jail. And Life magazine was preparing a major expose of his finances at the time, uh, which they dropped because of the assassination. But about a year later, they ran a kind of watered down version uh, but the Bobby Baker scandal was going on then. He, he was 
Johnson's bagman in the Senate, Johnson would get vast amounts of money from these Texas concerns, including um, Bell Helicopter and um, <clears throat> uh, General Dynamics and uh, Halliburton. And he would use the cash to spread it around the country to other Democratic politicians so they could you know, win their elections. And so that created a tremendous support for Johnson in Congress. And he was a Southern, uh, West, Southwestern Democrat. And, and no um, person from the South had been elected president for a long time, but he broke that. He wanted to break that barrier. <clears throat> and Robert Carroll makes a very convincing case that Johnson had to become president. It was in his psychological makeup. That was his whole drive. And he knew that he wouldn't live long either because men in his family tended to die young of heart attacks. So he felt it all came together. He had to become president uh, and he had to do it before the weekend was out because these investigations were going on. And Senator Ralph Yarborough, who rode in the car with Johnson during the motorcade, told me Johnson was very preoccupied, wouldn't even wave at people and stuff. And uh, Yarborough said, I kept telling him, look at all these people. They're happy to see you wave, smile, and he wouldn't do it. And uh, I said, what do you think caused that? And he said, well, there is this Senate investigation going on. Yarborough said, I put that together in my head afterwards when I found out about it. Um, but, you know, Johnson was very preoccupied about losing his seat. And Nixon had been in Dallas that day. And he gave an interview to the Dallas uh, Morning News and other press. He's at a bottom convention. Yeah, he was the lead lawyer for uh, Pepsi-Cola Corporation at the South west bottling convention it was the national bottlers convention johnson addressed it on november 20th he was in dallas nixon uh, was there um so you had four presidents there that day nixon kennedy johnson and george hw bush was in dallas um he, he gave a speech in dallas the day the night before and then he was there in the morning he went to tyler texas to give a speech at the time of the assassination and then flew back to Dallas that afternoon. Um, but Nixon uh, told the press that Johnson uh, was in danger of being dropped from the ticket. Or worse, he could have been um, fired. You know, uh, Kennedy might have uh, dropped him from the ticket. But but uh, people in Congress were trying to get him, and they, they, they might well have gotten him if he hadn't become president. Did Nixon and Johnson have a close relationship? There's an interview of Nixon, and he was like, "Are we recording?" And they're like, "No." Uh, I guess they're getting they're setting up, but the cameras are still rolling. And they go, "Did you see that book about Johnson?" And they go, "Which which one? This one? No, no, not that one. This one." And he goes, "They made him look like an animal." Well, he is an animal. And then he does like this laugh, and it's like, and there's another one where he talks about, you know, Johnson doesn't like to come in second, and he just starts doing this laugh that is creepy it's not funny it's creepy and it's kind of like it i mean it had me looking into johnson a little bit more and when you say about um people in his family didn't live that long or robert caro saying that there's a couple of phone calls that you hear of johnson with his secretary asking about a diet trend that he's trying to lose weight because he's gaining weight or whatever for being the president or whatever he's saying he's just not able to move around or anything like that he's asking like for tapioca pudding so i can believe that because he's caring more about his health and things of that sort but I mean, getting a window to the presidential office and seeing these presidents behind, I guess, the image that they displayed to the public. I mean, there's a phone call with um, Kennedy talking to a general and he's like asking about like the 
cost of the chairs that were in this video. And he's like, are you kidding me? And the guy goes, yeah, it was a major. And then Kennedy goes, yeah, it was a fuck up. And it was like hearing that. I don't know what about that. To me, that just makes it like makes them more human. We see this image or this facade. You know, we still have this weird trend of getting like Christian presidents and a family man or these. And it's like we don't our society doesn't accept that any i feel like we don't need that anymore but it's still like this political game that they play of like has to be a family man has to be this straight cut individual never says a curse word and every single word comes out of his mouth that has to be gold and it's like i, I wonder when that like seeing that i guess that visage or that kind of look drop when you're able to hear some of these tapes and some of these phone calls that they're having get to see the actual person behind that. i feel like it helps build the character and helps the public kind of realize that yeah they're not exactly like a 100 percent clear-cut individual but we also shouldn't hold them for like some of those small faults that's why i feel like in the history books like if you say martin luther king smoked cigarettes people like just freak out oh my god and they're like taken back i'm like well look, they're human beings like they're not this this like you know rosy dandy character yeah these tapes uh you know i remember when nixon's tapes came out people were more shocked by his profanity which was uh extreme um <clears throat> then by his secret scheming against his enemies and his plotting uh about the war and um when when nixon died there was this outpouring of sentimentality and former presidents came to his funeral and i thought this is really a, a way over the top and but about a week later haldeman's diaries came out which revealed all kinds of uh you know, all they were doing in the White House was sitting around talking about screwing their enemies and using profanity and anti-Semitic language and all kinds of stuff. And that kind of stopped the uh, adulation of Nixon uh, because that stuff was serious, you know. And But um, Kennedy and, and Nixon were both uh, Navy men, you know, and they both could swear a lot. Uh, Eisenhower had a bad temper. He swore a lot. He was an Army guy. And um, Truman was well known for his salty language and uh, they were, you know, earthy uh, uh, fellows. Politicians do not attract saints, of course. And um, Roosevelt uh, was taping in the White House to some extent. We have a few of those tapes. And um, he was a great political schemer, you know. And um, um, uh, uh, Johnson and Kennedy, um, you know, I mean, it was real politic. They were, they were tough guys. And you can't be president or you wouldn't be a good president without being a tough operator so yeah it does humanize people but johnson johnson was a, in a class by himself i mean nixon was deeply corrupt and and uh expanded the vietnam war uh when even johnson was against the war by spring of 68 uh, there is some remarkable um well, there are remarkable tapes in June of 64, and I think May of 64, you can hear them online. Johnson talking to Richard Russell, the senator from Georgia, who was a mentor of his, very knowledgeable about foreign policy, and he was on the Warren Commission, too. He was kind of a dissident there. And he was predicting that the war in Vietnam would be a failure and we'd lose 60,000 men and it would take 10 years, which was quite accurate. And Johnson knew that. He said, I agree, we can't win the war. He's, he's saying that if the public had only known in spring of 64 the johnson was saying we can't win the war what you know what was going on there he 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 conveys the impression that he was forced to expand the war when kennedy was killed because those people put him in power and um uh he, he on november 24th as a lot of listeners know he he uh had a private meeting with uh, henry cabot lodge the ambassador from north vietnam who was 
callback from Washington by Kennedy who wanted to fire him, but he survived because of Johnson and uh, Dean Russ, Secretary of State and other officials, McNamara were there and they reversed the trend of the Vietnam War two days after Kennedy was killed, but this is all top secret. And in my book, Political Truth, the Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy, I go into all this maneuvering back, backstage, which we didn't really know about at the time. I looked at what the press coverage was of, of Kennedy's Vietnam policy and Johnson's, and they, they all reported what the government wanted them to, which is there's going to be no difference as a continuation of Kennedy's policies, which was totally untrue, because in, uh, on the 24th, uh, they agreed to widen the war and take it to North Vietnam much more aggressively, and uh, he put that into a president uh, presidential order, secret order. And uh, Kennedy's um, winding down of the war was nullified at that point. And that was a huge turning point in American history that we didn't know about for quite a while until some of these things were declassified. But uh, if the public had known all the things that were going on around November 22nd that weekend, we would have had such a different picture. I mean, I, I list that in political truth. I mean, the, the fact that there were two Oswalds being run by the intelligence agencies it sounds maybe outlandish when you first hear it, and I was an agnostic for a long time, but John Armstrong in his book, Harvey and Lee, who did magnificent research, really proved that there were two people with that identity, and that's not uncommon in spycraft to have two people for plausible um, denial. If somebody does something in one city, you could say, no, he was in another city. And there were many reports early in the uh, press that Oswald was seen in two places at the same time, and people didn't know what to make of it. And a guy named Richard Popkin wrote an early book uh, called The Second Oswald, and uh, he tried to make sense of it. Uh, but Armstrong did voluminous research where he uh, tracked down all the sources and everything. And so there were two Oswalds, and then the Zapruder film was being altered that weekend to cover up what happened. And uh, uh, many, many things were going on behind the scenes that if we had known at the time, it would have shaken the foundations of the government and they covered it up. Now, I, I will say, and I go into this in, in Political Truth and also my previous book, Into the Nightmare on the, on the Assassination, that um, there's a thing in psychology called the point of maximum resistance. That We all have that. It's the, thing, the one thing you don't want to talk about, that, like the most sensitive thing, everybody has one. And for me, it was, in this case, Johnson's involvement. And there were rumors early on that Johnson may have been involved, because in a murder case, first you look for who has a motive to kill him. Cui bono is what it's called, who benefits. And obviously, nobody benefited more from the killing than Johnson did. And Jim Garrison made that point. And there was a lot of talk about that. And then there was a rather amateurish play called McBird, that came out in 67, I believe it was, that implicated Johnson. It was a takeoff on Macbeth. Um, but I wrote a, um, I, I tried to investigate this. This is still not fully investigated. There have been some books about Johnson being a possible uh, conspirator, but they haven't done the ultimate kind of research, and I haven't either. But I've, I've accumulated what I can, and um, some of these events uh, are very uh, revealing such as reversing the policy in Vietnam. Um, but I had a, a great aversion to thinking that Johnson might have been involved. That was too much for me at the time because I was still clinging to some idealistic views of government that 
you know, it can't happen here that the vice president would be involved in killing the president to get power. That happens in other countries, but not here, you know. So I wrote a, a, some angry letters, I think, to our college newspaper about that. And uh, but over the years, I just think it's fairly obvious that Johnson was involved in. This is still a sore point with a lot of Kennedy researchers. When you go on the forums, they're very nervous about Johnson's culpability, partly because it's not 100 percent proved. Uh, but um, well, there's a lot of smoke in there. You know, there must be some fire. And what they all say is, well, he may have known about it in advance, but he was not a not the mastermind. They keep saying he's not the mastermind. Well, we don't know who the mastermind was. It was probably several people getting I don't, together. I don't think you he know. orchestrated the plot. I think he was part of the cover-up. I think there was a couple individuals that are definitely – Hoover was probably one of those individuals that would be part of the cover-up. The issue is, is that – when you look at the Warren Commission, the Warren Commission had one suspect, Lee Harvey Oswald. So the issue is, is that the fast pacedness of the investigation, you know, whatever, as much as they did compile and as evidence, which you, I mean, I would barely call it evidence. Jack Ruby's mother's dental records have nothing to do with what should be in there, but the public hears it as this is the investigation of the president. Well, the Warren Commission was so fast to come out with an answer that it didn't just take its time like it should have. It should have just went thoroughly through everything. It could have taken a year. It could have taken however long to try and do an actual investigation. And then when I talked to Blakey about the House Select Committee on Assassination, Blakey told me that Stokes told him that try and maintain the reputation of these people when they were alive. And I go, if you go into something like that, that is basically going to deter you from pulling up, even if it's scandals, even if it's affairs, even if it's any of that. And it hinders an investigation. It throws a little bit of a monkey wrench in there. And then when he was requesting for documents, I, I looked at him. I defend the HSCA as much as the community might want to uh, crap on the investigation. I think he did his job. The job was not to embarrass any of the individuals that are going to be involved. And what I bring up is... When you look at these files in the 2021 release and they have Garrison's name in there, it says Garrison's attempts to embarrass the agency. Well, I come across a lot of that in the 60s, the 50s, and the 70s through different conversations, not even Kennedy related. The agencies are looking at it like this is going to hurt us. What are we going to do to stop this? When an agency starts looking at it like the people are attacking it, and now they're thinking of you like ants, that's a very dangerous thing. So now you're looking at what's the reputation that Blakey was protecting? Well, the reputation that he's protecting is these agencies. I mean, you saw a giant blow happen when William Colby exposed a lot of this in the Watergate hearings, and then the church committee kind of going through a lot of the covert action of some of these agencies. But there's issues there, and that's the thing is that these agencies, they might act on their own accord, but I mean, when it comes to the, the way that they trust each other, the FBI doesn't trust the CIA, the CIA didn't trust the FBI, and none of them trust the people. They look at the people like, what's going to stop us from doing the intelligence operations to keep America safe? And that's where you kind of start getting to the level of like the military industrial complex. Well, you're right. And um, it is still the case. And the word embarrassing is too mild because these revelations, you know, some of this came out, as you say, in the late 60s, early 70s. And I, I like a lot of people, was really uh, enlightened by the Watergate revelations because there was a bona fide conspiracy that everybody agreed was a conspiracy. Uh, people disagree even now on some of the uh, particulars, but um, 
that reached into the highest levels of government and Nixon had to resign as a, as a uh, result. And Vietnam was a conspiracy. Uh, you know, the, um, uh, the whole thing stemmed from the Kennedy assassination. It got worse and worse. Johnson misled the public in the, uh, the election of 64 by uh, saying Goldwater was the bellicose candidate and I'm, I'm not. And, and Johnson was just waiting to be elected to expand the war uh, even more dramatically. And, he got us into it and he, he knew that it was unwinnable and wrong and he couldn't he was it's really a tragic situation where you feel you're caught because of your actions and you can't can't stop things that are you know are going to destroy you and so in in march of 68 the wise men johnson had a group of advisors who were when they talk about the secret government this is an example really high-powered people such as uh, dean atchison and uh uh, uh, a lot of uh, Clark Clifford and a lot of important people um, met and and uh, because of the Tet Offensive in January 1960, where the Viet Cong uh, really kind of shocked the United States by uh, their, their, their power they had, even though the United States fought back very strongly. Uh, it was clear to the wise men advising Johnson that the war was not winnable without a police state. Carl Oglesby, in a very good book I'd recommend, The Yankee and Cowboy War, goes into this a lot, that um, w without a complete military state and, and uh, you know, maybe using nuclear bombs or whatever, we, we weren't going to win the Vietnam War. And even if we had used nuclear bombs, we would have lost because there would have been a disaster. But you gave me a couple good book recommendations. David, she I think David Sheen is his name, is Contract on America. You, you, you oh, know. that book. Well, that 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 I mean, that goes into the whole mafia did it thing, which I think is overrated. And Blakey, back in the day, I, I know he's changed his focus to some extent, but he, he basically thought it was a mafia operation. But, you know, the mafia, as people point out, could not have appointed the Warren Commission. They could not have falsified the autopsy. Those things were done under Johnson's control and the military. It was a military autopsy. And Johnson had the ultimate reigns as commander-in-chief and he appointed the warren commission and he was in charge of the cover-up there's no doubt well, and would, they would it be like a 9 11 situation where we train the people that eventually bit us in the ass i mean if you look at the organized crime angle where the cia was using the the mob connections to try and assassinate castro well what, what happens if the mob got pissed off and then they if they were the ones that did it then it's going to trace right back to the agency because i mean look at look at the tactics to kill castro an explosive seashell i mean poisoning a scuba suit poison pills giancana's idea of poisoning pills i mean there's stuff in there where it was like you're getting there's no way a mob person could do this this was an intelligence idea that was gifted to one of these mob individuals and then if you look at the i which i didn't know uh sydney gottlieb in charge of mk ultra i have a document that has the two people he was planned to use or help orchestrate plans to assassinate and it's patrice lumumba and castro like to me that's pretty intense well the church committee report also had a huge impact on my thinking they put out a report of uh, for, uh, U.S. intelligence, I mean, U.S. involvement in uh, plots against foreign leaders. And they detailed five different assassinations that we were involved in. And uh, they all involved the, the, the um, intelligence community and uh, operatives. Uh, you know, they were using mob people and other criminals in different countries to carry out their orders. And that's that's a uh, characteristic. And But that was a big shock for us to to learn all that stuff. And 
also just to find out about all the plots against Castro was a shock. So, so we were disabused of any remaining trust in the government by the mid to late seventies. And then the house select committee came along. They produced a lot of good documentation and evidence. Um, even though their investigation stopped short on certain areas, they never interviewed Ruth Payne or her husband, for example. Uh, and they, they fell for this, uh, uh, dubious tape. There was a tape that Mary Farrell, who I think was an intelligence operative, as she was a, a researcher, and her her group uh, leaked a tape to them, purporting to be a, a Dictabelt tape of made during the shooting from a stuck microphone on the motorcycle of a policeman in the motorcade. But the tape was quickly discounted as uh, fallacious. There are a lot of problems with it, uh, and that that kind of helped kill the credibility of the HSCA. Even even before that, I mean, they said there was a conspiracy involved, but we couldn't pinpoint who did it. But they thought Oswald had done it, which he, uh, I believe Oswald didn't fire any shots that day, but Oswald and some other gunmen on the grassy knoll. But the most insane theory of all, you know, I study this in political truth, the media and the assassination of President Kennedy. I study how the mainstream media tried to cover up and cope with this. Both the New York Times and Washington Post ran editorials after the HSCA put out the report and said, well, they said it was a conspiracy. There was somebody firing from the Grassy Knoll, somebody firing from the Texas School Book Depository. But you know, it's, it's quite likely that there were two uh, lone nuts who just happened to be there at the same time, firing at the same time, you know, which is totally insane. Uh, you know, nobody could believe that. But that's that's as, as desperate as they got. And that's the looniest JFK theory ever put forward. But have you ever looked yeah. into when they found the rifle in the book depository building? If there was three shots fired and there was one in the chamber that they found up on the top floor of the book depository building, why would you reload your gun if Kennedy's head already exploded? Uh, well, that whole gun was planted, you know, the Mandelker Carcano. Uh, was uh, the first policeman and deputies on the scene said it was a Mauser, including yeah, Roger a, and Fritz. Uh, and a guy named Seymour Weitzman, a deputy sheriff who had run a uh, sporting goods store. He was a real expert on firearms, and he said it was a Mauser, and Mauser was stamped on the, on the barrel, you know. And uh, they reported that to the press, and Henry Wade, the DA, uh, kept saying it was a Mauser, and then the story changed. I was a journalist from 1960 onward when I published my first magazine article, the same week that I got a letter from Kennedy thanking me for my work in the campaign. So it's kind of a nice coincidence. But um, so I was, and my parents were journalists, so I was fully aware when they change the story on you without a, a good explanation, that's a red flag in my book, you know, because some stories do evolve, but, you know, you have to give evidence to the public uh, for, for that to be believed. But uh, the fact that a um, it's it was said to be Mauser and then it was said to be Mandelker Carcano and they didn't explain it, it uh, stinks, you know, and also there were other rifles around the school book depository that uh, are in uh, photographs or motion picture film and there was a guy who worked there on november 20th who brought a rifle in to the building uh he claimed it was for uh, hunting and he was showing it off to people and you know there were suspicious things going on around that building it was owned by a uh, uh, bird who was a uh, member of the uh, military industrial complex he was involved in uh, operations that helped 
make him a huge profit in, uh, with the airplanes in Vietnam. And he was a crony of a lot of the uh, suspects. Uh, he was involved with uh, George H.W. Bush and a lot of people. And uh, some people think that the school book depository was a kind of Potemkin village because if you listen to the police radio, they call it the Sexton building, which was what it was known for for a long time. It was just a warehouse. And it wasn't until a few months before that Bird had taken over the building and converted it into a school book depository where they process books for Texas schools. And um, so, you know, he may have bought the building and set it up particularly to to use as a, a backdrop for the assassination where somebody fired some shots from there and they could claim they all came from there. And then some of the employees had suspicious backgrounds in intelligence too. And uh, so the more people look into that, it, it gets more suspicious. But the Dallas police were heavily involved and um, Johnson being from Texas and having a lot of cronies um, in Texas could control uh, or put pressure on the Dallas authorities who were uh, essential to the plot. And, um, you know, the mob, was connected with the Dallas police too. Jack Ruby was the bagman for the mob and they were, whenever they needed something done, he would give money to the cops. He kept them on the payroll and gave them girls and, and free booze at his nightclub too. Almost, you know, most of the policemen knew Ruby. I, back in my early research, I was going to the National Archives and collecting statements by policemen. I was trying to figure out how many policemen knew Ruby and I got up to 50 or 100 and I stopped counting because there were so many the new Ruby. And so the mob and, and the Dallas police were like this, but you're right. The mob was used by the CIA and other agencies to do some of the dirty work, but they weren't controlling that stuff. That was uh, CIA, FBI. Well, I think and a lot of it can be rationally explained. It doesn't have to be some giant grand conspiracy, but if you look at like, if the CIA or someone through their own investigation found out that it could have been a mob person that might've pulled the trigger or might've had some involvement, they think that's going to trace back to them. Um, they don't know what's going to happen, what's going to come out in court if that person's interrogated. And they know the extent of what some of those because the mob can't manipulate the media. The mob can't manipulate the autopsy. The mob can't do any of that type of stuff. But if you look at it from a self-preservation aspect, I mean, I could start understanding where the mob would have involvement. But the basic questions that I'm that I would ask would be, why would you reload a gun or have a bullet stuck in the chamber of a gun if you already blew the president's head off? Why wasn't every single building checked around the time? Why wasn't the whole area courted off? And why did certain people run to the grassy knoll when there was an active shooter? And that's the lone nut question. The lone nutters bring that one up. And what I would say is, if you look in Dealey Plaza, the amount of echoes that were going on, people heard shots from all different directions. Some heard it from the TSBD. Some people heard it from the knoll. Some people saw smoke from the knoll. Also, there's a parking lot over there. So more people are probably trying to escape and you're in a panic situation. I don't think, you know, you have to be law enforcement to be able to handle that. But you start looking at like where the conspiracy stuff gets really in Johnson's involvement. I just think Johnson was part of the cover up. I think somebody Hoover and, you know, Johnson, they probably found out maybe what connections this person had, even if it was Oswald. I had Blakey admit Oswald was intelligence. That fires back on them if that comes out. So you have to paint him as a lone nutter with no connections. That means destroys 201 file. There's just a lot of areas that the mob obviously couldn't get to to be able to manipulate or mess up or cover up anything. 
but it's that area of like, is any of whoever's involved going to leak back to the government in a sense? I mean, the overall question is if Johnson wanted to kill Kennedy or the government wanted to kill Kennedy, they could have just did it in his sleep. But usually the answer to that is, well, it was a sending a message by blowing his head off in Dallas. So, I mean, like, I, I'm not trying to solve anything here. I'm just trying to get a better historical thing. And I think some things can be rationally explained. But what I started to notice more was like, why isn't there any movies that have been based, not just Oliver Stone's film, but like inner side of J. Edgar Hoover talking about his horse betting, talking about any of this. And then you look into J. Edgar Hoover's invasion into Hollywood. Well, he manipulated the media. And honestly, you have a film studies. And I realized the film is actually probably a better portrayal of what a media person could ever do or what media could ever do. We look at newspapers and news outlets to give us our information. Honestly, I think you can get it better from the movies, the stuff that gets added onto that seems fantasy. I feel like movies are a better portrayal of the soul in a sense. I feel like some of those movies really, and I started learning about this more with speaking to more people who study film. I mean, political stuff, all of it, it's all involved in the film, the way scripts can be bought, the way scripts can be manipulated. And it's pretty revealing when you start looking at films now, you start analyzing what's a propaganda tactic, what's an influence, what's added on, why every time I think FBI, when they show up in a film, I think, okay, here's the elite team that's going to clear up the mess. They're not an elite team, they're just people. Well, when I study the media and the assassination, uh, media encompasses print media, television, radio, motion pictures, books. And we have more freedom in our country with books. Um, if you want to publish a book on the assassination, you can self-publish like I did with my two books, Into the Nightmare and Political Truth. Uh, I, I, I did that because I wanted to have complete freedom to say exactly what I wanted and the way I wanted. And you hire a fulfillment house to print on demand and it's sold through Amazon and, and the two books are selling well. Uh, and there are some small publishers who publish books on the assassination. The mainstream publishers will only basically publish uh, pro-Warren Commission books, although a few have leaked out uh, earlier uh, conspiracy books occasionally got published, but by and large, they don't. But we still have some freedom of the press in, in books and in films, like the film Rush to Judgment by Mark Lane and Emil D'Antonio was an early documentary that interviewed some of the key witnesses and, and raised some very important questions in a very believable way. And uh, so the, the filmmakers have often uh, studied it carefully, um, but there have been a dearth of, um, you know, mainstream Hollywood films on the subject. Uh, Oliver Stone's was a big exception. There was a good film called The Good Shepherd about the intelligence agencies. And unfortunately, the, Robert De Niro directed that, and he wanted to do a sequel that took it into the era of the Kennedy assassination, but The Good Shepherd didn't do well at the box office. And there was a low-budget film called Ruby about Jack Ruby. And But um, uh, so you have books and uh, also the blogs and, and uh, podcasts like yours. I think the internet, which is often maligned for a lot of reasons, because there are a lot of, you know, flaky uh, sites out there, but... They're also, it, it, it is more democratic. It frees up people like you, a uh, citizen uh, researcher who does your own blog and it's uh, terrific. You have many great guests and, and you can give the alternate views a hearing and uh, there are forums, there are websites, there are many numerous podcasts. Um, and, and so if you can't get it on CBS or uh, NBC, because those companies, as Carl Bernstein proved in his 
famous article in 1977 uh, in Rolling Stone, which you can read online. I'd recommend it to people. It's about the CIA and the media. He talked about how the CIA had heavily infiltrated the media. Uh, he said there were about 400 uh, so-called press people working for the, uh, the, the CIA, either full-time undercover as a journalist or part-time, you know, doing favors for them, printing stories they wanted or... So, I mean, he mentioned the three big culprits, the New York Times, Time Incorporated, and CBS, which are heavily CIA-connected. He didn't go out of his way to mention his own former paper, the Washington Post, but he mentioned it briefly. But the Washington Post has been a CIA front for, for a long time. Their former publisher, Phil Graham, uh, helped start Operation Mockingbird with Frank Wisner of the CIA in, in 1951 which was the CIA's controlling of the press uh, to, you know, so there, even today, that's why you, uh, the mainstream media lie to us consistently. The New York Times and the Washington Post are two of the worst uh, uh, contributors. And I go into them uh, heavily in political truth. And uh, uh, the networks put out these phony uh, specials and things, um, you know, uh, giving the true, uh, uh, the false propaganda story. It's interesting, recently, the Malcolm X assassination, which is very important, and he was a hero of mine. There have been some very good um, uh, things come out about that. Uh, there was a good documentary on Netflix, a six-part series I'd recommend. And um, uh, some of the uh, alleged gunmen were innocent. And they were one guy was let go after being in prison for a long time. And another guy died in prison, unfortunately. But the New York authorities uh, exonerated these two men. And uh, so we were fed a lie because the, the FBI and the New York police were heavily involved in that killing. And the New York Times has been reporting on it to some extent, but they don't go into how deeply the NYPD was involved or the FBI. You know, there's certain things that they can't go into. Well, it's the code of not embarrassing the agency. It's not just the CIA or the FBI. It's any police force in general. It's like maintaining this military credential establishment. I mean, look at the Fred Hampton assassination, 120 shots that were fired into his house. One was attributed to the Black Panthers. Then the execution of two shots to his head, no news coverage at all. The Black Panthers literally opened up his house and let the community walk through and literally see all the bullet holes that were lit up inside the house. Most of the guns were disarmed for cleaning and the police came in at 4.30 a.m. and they said that was the best time and that was police corruption. I mean, there were FBI people that were passing the floor plans to his house to know exactly where he would be located at 4.30. They knew where his bedroom was and they went back there and fired two shots up close to his head. Well, the FBI heavily involved, uh, infiltrated the anti-war and civil rights and black black power movements, uh, and they had uh, informants in them that uh, helped them Cointelpro. do uh, Yeah, COINTELPRO, and they had a lot of brutal uh, actions. Like That was one of the most flagrant where they just slaughtered uh, Fred Hampton and others. And, uh, but that, that, you know, the, the whole facts of that it came out, but nothing was, nobody was punished for it. But I, the point I was going to make about Malcolm X, as important as it was, the media can afford to be more honest about that because he was not president of the United States. You know, there are certain, you can, you can sort of tell the truth about some of the other things. There was even one story recently in the Washington Post about the Robert Kennedy shooting, which was actually pretty accurate. Most of the time they lie about that too, because that was closer to the top levels of power. But they can't talk about, and it's beyond the word embarrassment, that's too mild, as I said. I think it's 
it would really destroy the credibility totally of uh, the government if, if we knew the extent of these things. But one thing I trace in political truth is uh, people think that the loss of faith in government stemmed from the Vietnam War, but actually it stemmed from the Kennedy assassination before that. Uh, back in the early 60s, and I remember we all kind of trusted the government, or most people did. I was a kid and you know I was naive. But um, th th if you look at surveys, the public overwhelmingly trusted the government and the media, and that started to decline when JFK was shot. There was a Gallup poll about a week later, and most people didn't think Oswald acted alone. The idea that he didn't act at all was pretty radical, and, and it still is a minority opinion, but it is the majority opinion that it was a conspiracy. And then when the Warren report came out, people, um, uh, well, a lot of a lot of people briefly believed it, including me. And then we were when more people started uh, questioning and criticizing it, especially in '66 uh, when some important books came out, and um, people uh, suddenly people uh, didn't believe the Warren report. Uh, so the the public has been ahead of the uh, the media because the media are just so hopelessly corrupt, and and the government. But uh, and then Watergate came along and. Um, uh, the Church Committee revelations, and then uh, uh, Iran-Contra, and the, the Gulf War, and the Iraq War, and the Afghan War, and uh, George W. Bush, all these things. The, the, the credibility of the media with the public is is way low, and, and the credibility of the Congress is almost, you know, in the single digits. We got to talk know, because... about you and George Bush, man. We got to talk about you and George Bush. You've said his name a couple of times. He glossed over it. What's up with George Bush? Yeah, I discovered going through, people said I stumbled upon it, but I, I dispute this because I was looking for things. I was I was going through, I mean, I've been studying the Kennedy assassination as my avocation since 1982. A lot of time every day is spent on that. I started studying it seriously in the 70s, although, as I said, even in the 60s and even beforehand, I was interested in it. But in the 60s and 70s, I was reading books on it. But 82 is when I thought, okay, I'm going to go full speed and I'm going to write a book about it. And it took 31 years to get into the nightmare done. Uh, but um, George H.W. Bush, I was going through the 100,000 pages of FBI documents released through the Freedom of Information Act in 77 and 78. And I was in uh, the mountains of uh, above San Bernardino, California, working on my Frank Capra biography in 85. And I would come down to San Bernardino to shop and things. And I would go to the the university library there and they had this stuff on microfilm, this FBI material. And really nobody had gone through it because what happens when they release a lot of documents, the mainstream media write a story the next day and say there's nothing in there that means anything. You know, there's no physical way somebody could read 100,000 pages in a day. It's, it's insane. But I started going through it and I began finding these documents on George Bush. And um, I knew something about his record, but I knew that he'd become CIA director. But suddenly it was saying in 63, I found a document that J. Edgar Hoover had uh, 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 had a briefing of Mr. George Bush of the Central Intelligence Agency and some a few other people about the anti-Castro Cubans in Miami. And this was a week after the assassination, and they, they were worried what these anti-Castro Cubans would do because some of them were involved in the assassination. And so I thought, George Bush and the CIA, isn't that earlier than 
and he uh, he admitted. But I began finding uh, other FBI documents uh, of him, like telling uh, the FBI um, about an hour after the assassination, he called them and the Houston office and said that one of my workers, he was head of the Harris County Republicans in Houston, he was running for the Senate. And he said, one of my, the head of the young Republicans in Houston, James Parrott, had been talking about killing the president when he came to Texas. Now, the first thought you'd have is, well, if somebody was doing that, you should call the Secret Service, right, or the FBI. He didn't do that. Well, that's strange. And uh, so the, the FBI went to Parrott's home, and he was with his mother in Houston. And uh, they said, okay, that's that's his alibi. He didn't do it. But what I found was by digging further in these documents, which nobody looked at, was that the FBI had a, a long investigation of Parrott and his far-right friends in Dallas and Houston, some of whom were uh, talking about assassinating Robert Kennedy, and uh, they were very violent people. One was codenamed the Nazi, and they had this investigation, and um, uh, what happened with that was when I started researching Bush because of, you know, what I was finding out, I went to the um, National Archives to get the a report the FBI did. It was a 75-page report after the six-month investigation of these guys, and it had been removed from the National Archives shortly after Bush became vice president, which was very telling. But I got some pages from it from a House Select Committee investigator had some pages he gave me. And I also found documents relating to it. So I was able to get the kind of basic story. And uh, But the parrot thing is a kind of an odd uh, question. Houston uh, was the site of a motorcade for Kennedy the day before he was killed. He, he went through Houston. And then I went to Houston and I looked in the newspaper files. And the police chief said after the assassination, we were terrified all the time Kennedy was in Dallas that somebody might shoot him. And um, he said he had people uh, keeping an eye on suspects. And apparently Parrott was uh, under surveillance at that time. He was considered dangerous. And Fortunately, Kennedy, nothing happened to him there. There is a report that Jack Ruby was seen watching the motorcade as well. And, and that's a whole, uh, yeah, whole story that, no, he's watching the motorcade in Houston. And then he was watching the motorcade in Dallas too, because he's told somebody there might be fireworks. Yeah. But so um, there's a whole story there in Houston that nobody had gotten. So I printed this in, into the nightmare and uh, I ran my first Bush article in the nation in 1988 while he was running for president against Dukakis. And it caused a stir for about 10 days. I was on C-SPAN being interviewed by Brian Lamb and it was a banner headline in one of the Los Angeles newspapers. Bush was in the CIA in 63 and and I had a source, uh, an intelligence source, who told me Bush had been involved in the Bay of Pigs operation in 61. And um, uh, the New York Times picked up the story. The Washington Post, it was interesting. They didn't run the story at all. They went to the extraordinary links. Somebody at a Washington think tank, I went back to Washington and spent a couple months digging more deeply into the case. A guy at a think tank there said, look at the... Um, uh, cartoon section today of the Washington Post and the Baltimore Sun. And the Baltimore Sun had a cartoon of uh, a penguin reading a newspaper, and it was 1963, and it said, Bush is in the CIA, something like that. And uh, in the same issue of the New York, uh, the Washington Post, the same cartoon ran, except they blurred 
the he the newspapers so you couldn't see the the headline i mean if they're censoring a cartoon that's pretty extreme the post never ran a thing about my allegations because they're a cia front but what happened was 10 days into this i had called the cia and i asked for comment on this uh mr george bush of the cia in 1963 and the guy said, well, we never comment on uh, whether somebody was or wasn't in CIA. And I called uh, the vice president's office and his spokesman uh, denied the story, you know. And uh, But uh, 10 days into it, the story was getting such force that the CIA broke its policy and said, oh, this wasn't uh, the George Bush who's running for president. It was a guy named... Uh, George William Bush, who worked for us, but we can't find him, which is kind of weird. But I found the guy almost immediately. It turned out somebody from the National Security Agency informed us at the nation how to find this fellow. He had worked for the CIA as a lowly map reader in 63, and then he went on to work for the Social Security Administration. He was still living in Virginia. And so I, I, I interviewed that man and he said, well, it wasn't me who got that briefing. I was too low on the totem pole. I, w I never got the high powered briefings from Hoover or people like that. And he said, was that the other George Bush? So, um, but what the CIA did, you know, they said this story was wrong because it was this other guy. And the media all reported that and dropped the story. And I was hoping that some of the national press would really uh, dig into it, you know, and use their sources, but this is an example of how they didn't want to go into it. And uh, the parrot allegations I wrote up for the nation in a piece in October of 88, and they wouldn't run it because Victor Navasky, the um, very liberal editor of the nation said, don't write about the Kennedy assassination, it's a quagmire, It's we don't want to write about it. And then I realized that even though the uh, nation had exposed the Bay of Pigs operation before it happened, which I, I admired them for. They had been repeating the Warren Commission line for many years. Early in the uh, in 64, they ran a couple of articles that questioned the official story, but after that, they didn't. So here's a liberal progressive left-wing uh, newspaper that was hewing to the uh, Warren Commission version of events. And I found out that other liberal publications like the Progressive and IF Stone's newsletter were pro-Warren Commission. And that's as far as the control of the media goes, even to, into left-wing publications. And I found out that a couple of the um, people working at The Nation when I was working in their office were had intelligence connections, for example. And so they wouldn't run my Parrot article. Um, Finally, Spy Magazine did a piece on Parrot uh, quite a long time after that. And my friend David Robb, who's a great investigative journalist who doesn't believe in conspiracies in general, I tried to argue with him on that, but he, he interviewed Parrot. Oh, I'll tell you, when I was, I went to Houston to try to interview Parrot and do my research there. And um, I kept calling the Parrot home. I, uh, I should have just gone and rang the doorbell, but I kept calling them and they they wouldn't answer. Finally, I got Mrs. Parrott on the phone and she said that um, some guys from the FBI came to see us the other day and told us not to talk to you. And I kept my visit to Houston very secretive. I only told my wife and the nation, but I had gotten a grant from a uh, fund for newspapers to do investigative research. And Bob Woodward was on the uh, board of that organization. So I think that's where the leak came from. So the parrots were told and I said, the FBI? And she said, well, 
people like the FBI. She thought it was FBI guys. So they were, um, you know, tracking my investigation and shutting down my uh, uh, contact with Parrot. Uh, but I finally published my Parrot information in Into the Nightmare. I have 35 pages on Bush and his possible connections to the assassination. And Russ Baker, who wrote a good book on the Bush family, starts his book with me discovering the document uh, about Bush and the CIA, the 63 document. Um, and um, he goes further in some ways. He found that Bush was in Dallas on the 21st giving a speech. And I, I made an elementary mistake. I didn't look at the paper for the day before. You know, you should when you're studying an event, you should look for the papers before and after the event. And uh, Bush was giving a speech to some uh, petroleum organization, and he was a member of the Dallas Petroleum Club. As That's was, a profile for the deep state. Yeah, uh, Dallas Petroleum Club included in his membership George H.W. Bush, George de Morenschild, who was one of Oswald's CIA handlers, and Abraham Zapruder was a member of that. He dabbled in oil too and his son was an assistant attorney general uh Zapruder. you know he had some interesting connections I mean, he was a white russian anti-communist uh, there was this white russian community in dallas that befriended oswald or were keeping an eye on oswald included ruth ruth Payne, who was not a russian but she spoke russian and demorenschild and other people um Anyway, so here is the nation shutting down this investigation and the mainstream media wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole. And I, I hope that Dukakis would have raised this question, but he was too cowardly to bring it up and he lost the presidency. Do you think that a lot of this can be explained if you look at the pay to play system that the media kind of follows? I mean, obviously, the government has a lot of power to start doing subpoenas and looking into a lot of financial documents of certain individuals that that might run some of these media complexes. So it's easier for them to have a working relationship with them rather than and like one of these independent journalist ones. I mean. I, I'm not saying that I don't believe that some of them are not in the pocket. I believe some of them are. I believe that if you pay to play, you play the system game, you get invited to all the cool parties with all the political officials, you get interviews with star witnesses when you need to. But I also think a lot of some of those uh, editors or some of those people that might have been writing a story and you see them kind of back down, probably blackmail. I mean, they definitely have a lot of information, a lot of these independent reporters, and I think that's what caused a lot of these people to get scared. I think the buy-in system with the media, the interesting thing about today's time is that there's so many different media sources out there, not even talking about independent sources like podcasts or anything, but the news thing, everything gets labeled a Democrat or Republican issue. So that's the only reason they can talk about a lot of these scandals is if it's the other side and you boil it down to political sides. We've gone from media back in the day that used to be critical of agencies to now where it's critical of political parties. And it's like that's the only discourse that. So I don't think the media like is just suddenly today there's so much exposure on the only reason we get that exposure is because it gets pinned in a certain Democrat or Republican thing. I mean, you might have had right wing left wing conspiracies back in the day, but that's the I mean, everything now is like Trump this or Biden that or Democrats or Republicans. It's not FBI. It's not CIA. It's not blaming the Secret Service for destroying documents again. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, they, they cover the horse race superficially. And you're right that, you know, one thing they will report on a scandal, but they usually wait until some prominent politician uh, comes out and says something about it. Then they, then they feel they can write about it. 
But in my book, I, what I analyze is how this has led to January 6th and all the uh, problems we have with fake news. Uh, Trump likes to call news fake news if it's against him. But um, Be careful with the Jan 6th stuff. You can't say that on YouTube. Well, well, January 6th, I write about it a lot in my book because... Um, Don't say the name. Oh, well, you can't say the name. Well, huh? the guidelines on YouTube, they have it where you can't talk about QAnon stuff and you can't go into the Jan five plus one stuff uh, well i'll just say then what i trace is the lack of belief in in the uh government and the lack of belief in the media that is uh it it, it, it the vietnam war was kind of lied about and, and kept secret to some extent by johnson as long as he could and, and the public when they learned about it they lost a lot of faith in the government and then things i mentioned iran contra and the, the wars in the middle east etc but it's led to a schism in our country we have half the country believes the facts that are demonstrable and half the public believes a lot of nonsense and it is healthy to be skeptical of the government uh, of course in the media but it's gone so far that it's caused like some serious political problems and violence and division and and uh, people don't know what to believe you know the ordinary person doesn't uh, read a lot or they don't do their own research you, you really should do that when i talk to my students i talk about being critical of the media is very important i'm very critical of the media uh, uh, you know the, the mainstream media especially we have alternate media which are a, a, a good contrast but um you really need to read a lot of news sources every day and compare them and sometimes as people say the, the really important story is on page 22 of the washington post you know and there's a very good book that I kept in mind when I wrote Political Truth. Uh, Laurel Leff wrote a book called Buried by the Times. It was about the New York Times' failure to cover the Holocaust correctly. Uh, they, they did not give it much attention in the paper. For example, in June of 41, when a lot of the killing was taking place, they ran a little story very deep in the paper, like page 20 or something. It, said reports out of Eastern Europe are that a million or more Jews have been killed or 2 million, I think it said in recent months. And that should have been on page one, as she said, banner headline. And the fact that the paper buries it, you know, on page 22 in a short story, it implies to the reader, we don't really believe this or it's not important. And they kind of ignored the Holocaust uh, mostly until afterwards, you know, and so a lot of the public was in the dark about it. It's a terrible scandal. And, uh, the New York Times also uh, another infamous incident. They had a reporter in Moscow in the early 30s who was pro-Stalin, and he wasn't reporting on the famine. Stalin caused a famine that killed millions of Russians, and uh, he lied about that, this reporter, and got the Pulitzer Prize, and the Times now feels ashamed of that, but they haven't given back the Pulitzer Prize. And so they, they systematically lie to us on a lot of the most important issues. So so that's one of the reasons for the crisis in our country politically. People don't, a lot of people are confused. They don't know what to believe or they're, they're susceptible to politicians who lie to them, you know? Well, what do you, well, I mean, what, what when we say conspiracy, when we say things that, you know, you question, it's okay to be skeptical. I mean, what about the Franklin, uh, what about the Franklin scandal? which was that aspect of the CIA pedophilia that was going on. Um, John DeCamp exposed that, and Nick Bryant wrote a book on it, and Nick Bryant interviewed some of those people. If you look it up, they call it a hoax still. Is that the media and in, in the CIA working relationship that covers that up, or is that a real thing? Well, 
Yeah, I don't quite know what to believe in that, but there there is smoke there. And uh, the, one of the Washington papers ran a banner story about pedophilia in Washington. And I well, you mentioned you mentioned the Good Shepherd. What were they bathing in? Well, the Good Shepherd is kind of about Angleton and uh, a lot of those people who we know more about than we did in '63. These people were not very well known back then. But that pedophilia scandal, uh, there is something to it, but it wasn't. There is a book on it, uh, but. It hasn't been fully investigated as it should be, but you know the QAnon thing has has taken up the pedophilia uh, story, and uh, that's kind of like scaremongering. But I mean, there is child trafficking and pedophilia in the world, and and uh, people report on it. But um, some things are not. See, the job of journalists is really to investigate all these uh, things that are going wrong, and they don't do it. And Finley Peter Dunn, Mr. Dooley, the humorist, once wrote that journalists should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable and i believe on i believe that but they don't do that now they uh they comfort the uh comfortable and uh to get deeper into it as i do in my book there have been a, f a few books on the media and the assassination before but they haven't been written by journalists they've been written by other people and and I, i'm an old journalist from 1960 onward and i worked for newspapers and i know how it works and um so I analyze how why the press is so derelict. One is the very blatant one that Bernstein exposed that they keep people on the payroll or out of, they, some people think it's their patriotic duty to do what the CIA tells them to do. Uh, but they reach into the highest offices of these uh, uh, so-called news publications. That's a serious problem. But on another level, if you're a journalist, say covering the White House, you need to have access. It's so important to be able to talk to the press secretary, talk to the president, talk to high aides. And Helen Thomas is a good example. People remember her, uh, was a great journalist, independent, who always sat in the front row of the, uh, the White House briefing room for a long time covering the, she was with the UPI and she, she had a lot of seniority. And she asked tough questions during the George W. Bush years. She. Uh, she asked tough questions about the wars that he was carrying on. There were false wars built on lies. And she was basically, they, they stopped calling on her. And so she lost her job with the UPI because she had no access. And she wound up working for one of those throwaway papers in the in the suburbs. And uh, she was a great journalist. And she worked with my mother, Marion Dunn, covered the White House in the early 60s. And the, one thing they did was they helped... Uh, get women into the National Press Club. Uh, they worked together in my, and Helen Thomas told me later, my mother was a great journalist and we worked together. And But that's what happens to a, a good journalist um, because the editors think, well, she can't get the interviews. So we've got to get somebody else in there and stop. Don't ask those tough questions. And um, that's what it's all about is media. Uh, the media feel they're part of the government. They're an arm of the government. They should be... Uh, critiquing the government they should hold them responsible but instead they're they feel they're part of the gang they use the word we when they talk about the government you know in the media and um so i analyze all that and there's so many pressures and uh, as you say for example during watergate nixon was threatening to take away the broadcast licenses held by the washington post company uh that they had uh, some TV stations, and that can really cripple their operation. And here's another thing. Why did this so-called liberal paper, the Washington Post, which is not really a liberal paper, why did they support um, the, um, the war in Iraq? 
I looked into this, I wanted an answer, and I found what I think is the answer, that the Washington Post in that period, the Post Company, their major source of income was their printing operation. They have a printing operation. And the um, uh, newspaper is a loss leader. It wasn't their main source of income and it often lost money, but they were lobbying the Bush administration for a law to get a tax break for their printing corporation printing operation and if they got the tax break they would be making a profit and if they didn't get it they'd be losing money and they'd be in big trouble so that's why they supported the war in iraq in my opinion you know you have to follow the money as in the all the president's men that's the line but it was writ written by william golden the screenwriter it was not said by anybody in watergate the whole story about the post and watergate is a big fabrication too that Watergate was a CIA plot to take down Nixon, who was uh, in, in a fierce bureaucratic battle with the CIA, who was trying to take over uh, their their role and, and minimize their role, and they wanted to get rid of him, and they didn't like his detente with the uh, Soviets and the Chinese. And um, so uh, Watergate was, uh, Bob Woodward is an Office of Naval Intelligence operative and was way back then. He served in Vietnam as an intelligence officer for ONI. And he, when he came back to Washington, he, he went to the White House every day to brief Alexander Haig, uh, who was Nixon's chief of staff, uh, gave him the top secret Navy briefing. And today he denies that, but it's true. And so he was an undercover agent working for the Washington Post. And Deep Throat didn't exist. Uh, in the early manuscript they turned in, to uh, their publisher, uh, there was no Deep Throat character. Alice Mayhew, their editor, suggested, why don't you have a character called Deep Throat? And what it is is an amalgamation of all of Woodward's intelligence sources he doesn't want to admit. And there was no individual with that name. And later he claimed it was this guy, Mark Felt, who is undoubtedly one of his sources, but he wasn't the only source. But Woodward doesn't want to admit that he's heavily involved with the government. And some books and uh, articles have, have exposed Woodward in the Post, but Watergate is a big myth. You know, one of the things I, I, I was governed by in writing my books on the assassination, which ties in with foreign policy and domestic policy, and I kept that in mind all the way through. Um, it's not just an isolated story of media screw-ups, screw but all the major events in American history since 1960, the, the official stories are false. Kennedy assassination, Vietnam, Watergate, Iran-Contra, um, other Reagan operations, and the, the 2000 election, the Gulf War, the Iraq War, all these official cover stories are false that they put out to the government. And when you look into it, the, the official stories are preposterous. 9-11 is another one. Uh, you have to kind of uh, deconstruct these things. And, and it takes independent researchers like you and me and other people on the internet and in books to um, tell people the truth, but I have a whole section in political truth listing all the things. If we knew on November 22nd, what we know now, wow, I mean, the, the country, the government might have collapsed. And, and But it, in most countries, if the leader is killed, people go out in the streets and they riot and, uh, you know, do all kinds of stuff. And in our country, nobody went out in the streets. And part of the reason, and I wrote about this into the nightmare, I was thinking of writing a chapter on the media but I realized it was too big a story. It needed a whole book. But I did a story on the 
TV coverage of the assassination that weekend, what I call the four-day docudrama, and I was watching that stuff on TV, and it was it was like a little TV drama. You know, first you have the shocking opening: president gets killed, <clears throat> and then they catch somebody, the suspect, and then they first day they proclaim he's the guy who did it. Then they keep adding information, and on Saturday they kill the guy on national TV, execution on TV, which I thought was very significant at the time. And that's when I learned um, that people are tried in the media. And I, I was raised to believe the constitution, et cetera. You have due process, you have a trial, but it, instead we have trial by media, it happens all the time today. So they tried him on t TV, convicted him and killed him. And then they had the funeral on Monday, which was a magnificent spectacle that was, all the mainstream networks collaborated on it and CBS directed it. And uh, <clears throat> it was very moving, but it was a, a big military funeral and the military were involved in killing Kennedy. And so he's given a military funeral and um, uh, the media kind of stopped covering the case seriously. There was sporadic coverage in the weeks that followed, but it kind of slowed down. And a lot of stories came out that were contrary to the official story, which took a while to develop. I mean, Richard Dudman of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch was a good reporter on the scene who saw a, uh, a hole in the windshield of the presidential limousine at Parkland Hospital. And he said there was a shot through the windshield and he wrote about that. And he also did a piece in the New Republic and Stoughton Lind, who just died, wrote a piece with Jack Minnis. Lind was a prominent activist in civil rights and anti-war activities and labor issues. And he and, and Minnis wrote a piece in the New Republic in, uh, de on December 21st questioning the, the Warren report. Mark Lane, who was a New York lawyer, wrote a, a very influential broadside questioning the official story and raising the question that Oswald was not guilty. And, a lot of publications turned it down, including so-called liberal publications. And he got it in a small left-wing uh, outlet in New York, uh, which had tremendous um, demand for that. And they kept printing it as a pamphlet. And then he wrote the book, Rush to Judgment. But right after the assassination, the media kind of declared it over. You know, and One of the worst comments, Dan Rather, who was heavily involved in the assassination, and one thing I found in my research that surprised me was how certain media figures and media companies were involved in some of the plotting of the invest of the assassination time life and Dan rather had some suspicious activities before the assassination like, for example. Um, each TV network. Uh, well, ABC and NBC each had one crew following Kennedy in Dallas at uh, you know camera crew and um, reporter and camera and sound guy and but cbs had five camera crews in dallas because dan rather said we need to have you know go all out with our coverage in dallas they also had the only live hookup in dallas at the trademark where some people thought violence might occur um so dan rather and cbs got a got a lot of scoops because of his premonition you know did he have inside information that's quite extraordinary um but they basically shut down the story and dan rather said in a, in a uh, interview in one of his retrospective uh cbs uh reports he said 
the day I think about people think of November 25th or November 22nd, I think of November, November 26th, the day America went back to work. He said millions of people went back to work and school and uh, the country continued and uh, the system worked. And I find that very wonderful and comforting. And I'll tell you, when I went back to high school on November 26th, I felt really bleak. You know, I had worked for Kennedy. He was murdered and I had seen this TV trial and execution and I, I didn't believe uh, that Oswald was guilty the first day. <clears throat> I didn't believe it. I'll tell you in a minute why not. But um, I, th I went back to school with terrible feelings about our country that everything was kind of up in the air and lost and shattered. And I didn't feel that the system worked. I didn't feel comforted. But Dan, that's how Dan Rather felt. And that's what the media and um, um, Brinkley, uh, David Brinkley, who was another uh, respected TV anchorman, said that our job was to keep the country calm, you know, and not ruffle them. And they were very concerned with keeping order instead of doing their job. But, you know, and, and um, everybody was watching TV on November 25th. 93% of the TV sets in the country were tuned to the funeral. So we were all in our houses. We were atomized. You know, we weren't a group. People didn't go out in the streets to hold rallies demanding answers. They were sitting in their homes, and that was part of the catharsis that they were trying to enact. Um, and so, you know, the public public didn't believe it, but they were passive. There's a guy named Martin Schatz, who's a doctor, a, psych a psychiatrist, wrote a good book called History Will Not Absolve Us. And one question I always wondered about was, why, if the public doesn't believe in the assassination and uh, a Gallup poll official said that consistently about 70% of the public has not believed in the official story from the beginning. It may be a little less now, but um, why is that? Why don't we do anything about it? And um, Schatz wrote that there's a big difference between knowing and doing. In other words, psychologically, you know something is wrong, but to move from knowing to doing something about it is a gigantic leap that most Americans are not prepared to take because there are consequences if you do something about it. You know, if you espouse controversial views on that and other subjects, um, Kennedy assassination and 9-11 are the two third rails for our public and people can get lose their jobs and get in trouble. You know, if you're a newspaper reporter, on the poster of the Times, you can't write about the Kennedy assassination from a skeptical point of view. You'd lose your job if you keep trying, and some people have lost their jobs. And um, but Schatz says that you know, doing something about it causes consequences. And I've I'm not afraid of that. I've been doing this for a long time as a journalist and as an independent researcher, and now I'm a professor and I have tenure, which protects me, and so I can speak my mind. And, but you know, one thing you have to overcome is the psychological barrier because for a long time in the earlier days, when I would talk about the assassination with friends, they would get very anxious and very scornful. They would laugh. That's a common attitude. You get ridiculed by people, you know? And that bothered me for a while. And until I kind of accepted it, I thought, okay, well, these people don't know what they're talking about. And, and I do, and I'm just going to accept it. And, but you have to, that, that takes a while for you to build up that you know, courage to talk about it. But since then, I just, you know, so it was a coup d'etat and um, 
highest levels of our government were involved. And you know, another thing I found in my research, some people say, well, it's absurd to say there was a vast conspiracy to use words like that. Well, I found out that more and more people were involved in it than I thought, because you don't just kill a president with a rifle, you know, with one or two guys. I mean, you know, it takes it takes a lot of uh, operatives to uh, set it up and help the killers escape and then cover it up on a, on a police level and then a national level and have the autopsy. And I kept finding more and more people that had to be culpable of uh, things, including Kenneth O'Donnell. I was surprised. He was Kennedy's appointment secretary. In effect, he was the chief of staff. He was a longtime Kennedy worker. And I kept finding out that he had done some very crucial things to make the plot happen. He was the guy in charge of stealing Kennedy's body from Parkland Hospital. That was one of the big shocks for me when I read that in William Manchester's book in 67, they stole Kennedy's body from Parkland. He was supposed to have an autopsy there under Texas law. Dr. Earl Rose was the medical examiner who did good autopsies on Tippett and uh, Oswald. And he was in the hallway saying, no, you can't leave Dallas with the body. I've got to do the autopsy. And the Secret Service and Johnson, uh, Kennedy's aides were pushing the coffin. Mrs. Kennedy was standing there very distraught and it got violent. Uh, uh, somebody pushed uh, Dr. Rose up against the wall and agents were pulling their coats back to reveal their guns. But it was really O'Donnell who was behind that, getting the body out of uh, Texas. And Henry Wade, the DA, who I had a really remarkable interview with, and he admitted they didn't really have a, a real case on Kennedy for killing Oswald, uh, Oswald for killing Kennedy. Um, uh, and he said he gave the order to let the body go. And he kind of joked about it with me. He said, well, the worst thing they could do is get a $100 fine, you know, and and uh, that's a very minor thing. But if, if Dr. Rose had done the autopsy, the whole history would be different. You'd have an honest, honest autopsy. But I actually think it's possible Kennedy's body was not in the coffin because I found buried in the Warren Commission volumes, there's a report from an administrator at Parkland who wrote about a secret exit from the emergency room that you could take to go outside through a tunnel. And he said that during that period uh, at the hospital, a uh, Secret Service man came to him and said, we want to remove uh, the Johnsons you know, secretly from the hospital. He said, well, we can do it through this tunnel, et cetera. And I think there's strong possibility the uh, body was removed uh, in a different uh, uh, carrying case. You know, it arrived in a metal uh, shipping coffin. And I think it might've been removed in the, um, tunnel and so therefore the 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 coffin may not have contained a body and if dr rose had opened the coffin and found no body that would have blown the whole conspiracy right there and uh, o'donnell was uh, critical in planning the motorcade route i spent a lot of time analyzing that because the motorcade as is well known violated secret service uh, rules by taking a sharp left turn which caused it to slow down and it passed the Texas School Book Depository, and they should have uh, known that there, there was a guy working there who had been a defector to Russia, et cetera, and uh, um, all kinds of problems. And the motorcade was uh, going 11 miles an hour when the shooting took place, and, and their rules were it couldn't get below 25 miles an hour, and a lot of other things that O'Donnell was responsible for. And uh, 
Then I found out in Seymour Hersh's book in the Kennedys, which admittedly has some dubious things in there, but he has some things that are well-researched. He had a good source who said that O'Donnell was going to be fired at the White House in, on November 25th because he had been caught embezzling funds from uh, operations. And the Kennedys were reluctant to fire him because they thought he was a, a loyal guy, but they, they were uh, presented with uh, irrefutable uh, evidence of embezzlement. Also, he had been bad-mouthing the president uh, to various people, and they, they'd heard about this. And um, his daughter has been writing books, kind of trying to puff him up into a heroic figure. And she said that he drank himself to death, basically, over guilt about the assassination. Uh, and he, um, he also lied to the Warren Commission. Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House, revealed this in his memoirs that Dave Powers and, and Kenny O'Donnell, Kennedy aides, were in the follow-up car, and they both um, heard and, and saw evidence of shots from the Grassy Knoll, and they didn't tell the Warren Commission. But um, O'Donnell flatly lied, and he said later the FBI told him to lie about it. Now, what kind of a loyal aide is that who lies about stuff like that? And Powers kind of uh, hedged before the Warren Commission. He was more loyal, but um, Mort Saul, the comedian whose career was pretty well eviscerated by his uh, work investigating the case, said that Kennedy had some very strange friends, uh, remarkably absent when he fell, you know? They didn't stand up for him and they didn't uh, investigate the case. And uh, so, so these are some of the things that I found. It was a much wider conspiracy. And it had to be. There were a lot of moving parts in the conspiracy. And the Dallas police had to be gotten uh, under control. And the autopsy had to be done uh, at a military hospital with, with the way they wanted. And well, the body had of, to be You've done a lot body of had to be altered. The, uh, yeah. Assassination. And I appreciate the time you've given me to do my show all the times you have done before. I'm slowly learning, getting a lot of it down. I think uh, through the various conversations I've had, you realize how really wide the case really is. Um, but I read Political Truth when you sent it to me um, when you were doing your filming part back when we did record that part. But I appreciate the time you gave me to talk, McBride. Um, is there a place where people can find your books? Well, I had a website that my son put together a very good website about my books and other things, but it lapsed because I was so busy. I had four books that came out in a short period of time. In October, I had a book called Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge, a, a very ambitious critical study of the great filmmaker at Columbia University Press published. And then I had Political Truth in December. January, I had a new edition of my book, Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, Portrait of an Independent Career with an new epilogue. And then in March, I had a book on the Coen brothers called The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen brothers. So I was so busy, four books out in a, they're all coming together at one time. Some took years to work on, but I, I neglected to renew my website. Uh, so, but what you can do is go on Amazon because my two Kennedy books, Into Nightmare Political Truth, are sold only through Amazon or the Fulfillment House Vervante in Utah. You can go directly there and buy them. But uh, Amazon, uh, it's really terrific for independent 
uh, writers, you can self-publish a book and Amazon will spread the word around the world. And so it's, I get a lot of sales from people in foreign countries who are very interested in this case and throughout the United States. And it, it's been out for nine years now into the nightmare. It's been selling really well and political truth is, is selling well too. So you go to Amazon, you can find all my books. Um, there are a couple that are out of print and I'm, I'm in the process of trying to get them back into print. But um, you can see all the books listed and then you can buy all these books that I mentioned on Amazon. Well, I'm going to link all your links in the description. Um, and I appreciate the time you gave me to talk and thanks for listening to this episode of How